Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, welcome. Excited for us to look at God's Word together today. And as we do so, uh, we're going to be continuing our series that we have called Follow a series that, that looks at the, the person of Jesus Christ and, and see his invitation to us to follow him. This is a series that is anchored out of Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10. In those uh, chapters of Scripture alone, there are eight different references to Jesus calling people to follow him. Now, before we, we get into today's passage, though, I want to just remind us of something. Jesus is real. He really exists. 2,000 years ago, he really came to this earth. He really died on the cross. He really was resurrected from the grave. He really ascended into heaven. During his, his earth, he really was born in Bethlehem. He really spent time as a toddler in Egypt. He really was raised in Nazareth. He really set up his earthly ministry out of the city of Capernaum. Uh, he really went to Jerusalem for festivals. He was a real guy. And as Jesus lived his very real life, it's fascinating for us to see that he interacted with real people, a broad spectrum of real people. Really, uh, the, the, the cornucopia of everyone he could interact with in his day and where he lived, Jesus interacted with all of them, with men and with women, with young, even down to small children, all the way to the elderly with those who were members of the ethnic majority in the area in which Jesus lived, they were Israelites, or those who were of the ethnic minority in that region, the Gentile people. He interacted with, with both of them in that, in that time, in that place. Jesus interacted with the religious, those who were pious, those who went to church, and with the irreligious, those who wanted nothing to do with organized religion. Jesus interacted with all of them. Jesus interacted with, with those who were proud. He interacted with those who were humble. He interacted with all people everywhere he went. He interacted with Democrats and Republicans. You didn't know that it went back that far. It did. Uh, no, there weren't Democrats and Republicans, not red and blue states. But be believe me, there were different political parties, and Jesus interacted with all of them. And to every group that Jesus went to, the same invitation went out. He said simply to each of them, follow me. Now, the book of Hebrews lets us know that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, as we can imagine Jesus here today speaking to us through his word, the scriptures, he is inviting you and I to do the same thing, to follow him. But even as we saw last week, when this invitation to follow Christ comes to us, we struggle with that, don't we? Many times we, we think that invitation to follow Jesus must be intended for someone else, not for me. Sometimes we think that because we have some excuses. We're good at making excuses, aren't we? We have excuses for why that invitation doesn't apply to us. One of the excuses that you might hear is, I can't follow Jesus. He, he's not inviting me to follow him because I'm too old. I've already lived my whole life. There, there's not time enough for me to change the trajectory of the last 50, 60, 70 years. Maybe if I was a younger person, I could follow Jesus. That's for them, but it's not for me. There's some of you here today that are probably thinking something along those lines. The invitation to follow Jesus isn't for me because I'm too old. 
Or maybe you're thinking the opposite of that. The invitation to follow Jesus isn't for me because I'm too young. You know, when I get into high school, then I'll follow Jesus. When I get into college, then I'll follow Jesus. When I get out of college, then I'll follow Jesus. When we have kids, then I'll follow Jesus. When our kids are older, then I'll follow Jesus. When our kids are out of the house and we're empty nest, then I'll follow Jesus. When this thing or that thing happens, then I'll follow Jesus. What we're saying in all of those excuses is we're saying we're too young. We're going to live our own way for a while, and maybe later on we'll make that decision to follow him. Some people are making that statement. No, I'm not going to follow him because I'm too young. Some are saying, no, I'm not going to follow Jesus, not because I'm too young or too old, but because I'm too broken. You have have no idea what I have done. I'm I'm too broken. That invitation is for, for good people, and I'm not one of the good ones. I can't believe I did blank. I can't believe I I, I had the abortion. I can't believe that I I slept with this person. I can't believe that I ingested that. I can't believe that my marriage fell apart. I can't believe that my kids and I have no relationship. I can't believe that I uh, wounded the life of a friend. Whatever it is, you feel like I'm broken. And because of that, the invitation to follow is not for me. Others are saying something different. We're not saying we're, we can't follow Jesus because we're too broken. We're saying we can't follow Jesus because we're too proud. I'm not going to follow anybody. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to stand on my own two feet. You know, for a variety of different reasons, we, we look at the invitation to follow Jesus and we say no because we're too old, we're too young, we're too broken, we're too proud. What's fascinating as we look at the pages of the Scripture, friends, is that Jesus comes to people who might have given all of those illustrations. I might have given all of those excuses. And he looks at them and he says simply to them, follow me. And as they rise and get up and follow, we find that there's hope for us who might offer a similar excuse. And today we're going to look at a section of God's Word. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 9 verses 9 through 17 as we see someone who very easily could have given an excuse as to why the invitation to follow would not have been for him as to why he should not have gotten up and followed, and yet he did. And in his faith to get up and follow, you and I might find an inspiration to follow Jesus as well. Today we're going to look at Matthew 9, and we're going to see the story of an individual who gets up and follows Jesus, and that individual's name was Matthew. That's right. We're going to see the story of the one who wrote the book that we're reading from, the Gospel of Matthew, the first gospel, we're going to see his account of beginning to follow Christ. And in it, we might be encouraged to follow him as well. So I encourage you to get your Bible out and look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. We're going to walk through those verses together. We're going to see a couple of things, and then we're going to end our time by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. The first thing we're going to see from these verses is this. Jesus invites the fallen to follow. Jesus invites the fallen to follow. Now, we see that right in these verses 9 to 13 as Jesus invites Matthew to follow him. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, I want to just make a comment about this for a second before we we go any further. Remember, Matthew's the one who wrote this, and, and Matthew includes only one verse about this event. 
I think that's amazing humility. Honestly, if I was going to write this story about the moment when Jesus came and invited me to follow, I would talk about what he was wearing. I would talk about what the, the weather was like that day. I would, I would talk about how he touched my shoulder. I would talk about what we ate when we went to the party afterwards. I would have talked about everything. Matthew here just simply says in one verse, there's a man called Matthew, and Jesus invited him to follow, and he got up and he went. But make no mistake, Matthew was invited to follow. Now, here's the thing. Matthew was a very interesting person for Jesus to invite to follow him. Matthew, in many ways, is the perfect picture of a fallen person. And we see that in in a lot of ways. We see it here that he was sitting at the tax booth. Now, he was there not because he was paying tax. He was there because he was collecting it. That's right, Matthew was a tax collector. Now, when we think about a tax collector, we think about somebody who might work for the IRS. If you work for the IRS, I am really sorry for what I'm getting ready to tell you. Um, But it's probably not the first time you've ever heard it. People don't love the tax guy, right? Um, And that was no different in the first century, only it was that sentiment on steroids. Because the way in which taxes were collected in the first century set up the tax collectors to be despised in their society, especially in Jewish society. So let me just let you know how it happened in the first century. Some of you are familiar with this, but if you're not, it's a good reminder, refresher for all of us. So let's just imagine that that Darren is the tax collector for Hall Park, okay? So if Hall Park was a part of the Roman Empire, Hall Park is the neighborhood around which Wildwood is, and let's say that, that Rome looks at this neighborhood and says this neighborhood is required to pay $100 in tax every month to Rome. And then they look at the residents of this region and they find who can they award this gift to or who might bribe the Romans with the most money to get this job. And so Darren somehow pulls that off and he becomes the tax collector for, some of you are wondering, am I going to do this to you? Darren's a friend of mine, so I can pick on him a little bit. Okay, so he's the the tax collector for this region. He's got to pay $100 to Rome every month. But whatever Darren collects above that $100, he can keep. Now, let's just imagine that in this neighborhood, Darren has the nicest house. And I don't mean like a little small house. I mean like a great big house, the kind of house that's got like a moat with alligators and a drawbridge, okay? Um, And he's living in that house. And not only is he living in that house, but he's driving like the fanciest cars. And he's eating the, the fanciest meals. And you look over and you see all of that and you know it's coming off of the taxes he's collecting off of you. What do you think about Darren? You're getting a little irritated, aren't you? And not only that, not only is he collecting those taxes off of you, but he's doing so to pay the hated Romans. I mean, he's a turncoat. He turned his back on his own people to make a profit. And so because of that, the tax collectors were very despised people. Now, it's interesting. It says he is sitting at the tax booth. Now, where was this tax booth? Matthew's tax booth was in the city of Capernaum. Capernaum was uh, a city that was not very large, but it was located in a very strategic location. It was right on the trade route from Egypt to the east. And so a lot of people would pass through there and a lot of taxes would be collected there. But Capernaum, though it had a lot of people traveling through there, it only had a year-round population of about 1,500 people. Okay, so let's just 
put that into some context. That would be about the size of Minko, Oklahoma. Anybody here ever been to Minko? Uh, hey, we got a, a Minkoite here. Uh, but, you know, Val Castor's been to Minko, right? On the Gittner and the storms, chasing storms. But, but I've never been to Minko. But let's just think about it. Minko is a town in Oklahoma, about 1,500 people. Now, just imagine, you think the people in Minko knew each other? I mean, 1,500, that's a relatively small area. Living in a fairly dense area on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, they would have, they would have known each other, only 1,500 people. You certainly would have known the person that was living in the house with the, with the moat, the alligators, and the drawbridge. You certainly would have known him. And so Matthew was a tax collector in a small town, and everybody in that town knew him. Now, who else lived in Capernaum? Peter lived in Capernaum. You know, if we were to go to Israel uh, together today, we'd go to the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, we'd go to the city of Capernaum, I, I could take you and show you Peter's house. Good archaeology would tell us that is where Peter lived. That specific house right there is where Peter lived. Peter lived in Capernaum. That means you know who Matthew was collecting taxes from? Peter. You know who else he was collecting taxes from? Other residents of that city, Andrew, James, John who left their boat right off the shore there and followed Jesus. He was collecting taxes from them. You know who else he was collecting taxes from? Jesus. See, Matthew was not just someone who was living out a despised profession, who was exploiting some of his countrymen. He was living out a despised profession, exploiting those who were a part of Jesus' disciple corps, including Jesus himself. Now, friends, knowing that, is it not amazing to you that Jesus walks up to that guy and says, follow me? That's remarkable, the grace that he showed him. It's not that Matthew had done some bad things. He'd done some bad things to Jesus. Matthew was not just fallen in general. He was fallen in the direction of Jesus and his disciples. And yet Jesus says to him, rise, come on, let's go. Follow me. And so he gets up and he goes. Well, what happens next? They go to Matthew's house. Mark chapter 2 lets us know the house that they head to. It was Matthew's house. It was the house with the drawbridge and, and, and the moat and everything. And they go there. They go to this big house. And Matthew invites all of his friends to come over. All of his fellow despised and rejected social pariahs. He invites them all to come over. He says, hey, guess what? Jesus invited me, the fallen, into fellowship with him. And I think if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. Come on over. Let's have a meal with Jesus of Nazareth. And so the table grows. They're sitting there eating. Verse 10, Jesus reclined at the table of the house, and behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? <laughs> Their question is simple. What, what is he doing? Why is he hanging out with, with those people? How in the world could, could he recline at the table with the one who took my last hundred dollars when I needed it to feed my family so that he could live in that house? Why did Jesus go and hang out with him? That's what they were asking. It's a reasonable question, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. Many times we have this, this mythical 
fantasy of why Jesus hung out with the, the tax collectors and the sinners. We think that Jesus hung out with them because they received him warmly. They were the nicest people to him. I mean, the Pharisees are always busting his chops about something, so he had to have some friends, so he went and hung out with the tax collectors and the sinners. That's sometimes what we think. But you know what this passage tells us? That's not why Jesus went to Matthew's house. He didn't go there because Matthew was nicer to him than the Pharisees. Why did he go there? He didn't go there because they received him warmly. He went there because they needed him greatly. It says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call, not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. Theologically, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus wanted to make sure that everyone there understood that he was there among them because of their great need, and they were beginning to recognize that need, and so he had come to them as a physician to bring healing and wellness and forgiveness because they needed it. Why is it that Jesus invites you and I to follow him? It's not because we have received him warmly. It's not because we're American. It's not because we live in Norman or in Hall Park. It's because... He is gracious and loving, and he knows we need him. We need the forgiveness that he offers. And so Jesus shows up. He shows up. And he invites the fallen, you and I, into fellowship. He quotes here Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. It's an Old Testament verse at a time where the, the people of Israel were more interested in their religious services than they were in showing mercy and grace to people. And Jesus says, as I hear the questions that you're asking, you've fallen into the same trap. You're more interested in your programs. You're more interested in your piety. You're more interested in your reputation than you are in the fact that there is someone who is lost who needs to be found. And so Jesus shows up and he invites the fallen into fellowship. Now, as we think about that, I want us to reflect on two things for us today. Two things that we need to to reflect on. The first thing is this. Death is the prerequisite for life. You know, if you're taking classes at the university, English 101 is a prerequisite for taking English 102. You take one before the other. And what Jesus is saying in this passage is he says, if you want life, then you must begin with death. If you want the hope of eternity that only I can offer, Jesus says, it begins not with you thinking that you're so great, but it begins with you realizing that you're a sinner in need of God's grace. And friends, if you're here today and you are feeling the weight of your sin, you're feeling shame, you're feeling broken, you think that you might be the only one here who feels that way, guess what? You're a broken person sitting among broken people. And if that conviction is coming upon your heart, guess what? That doesn't mean the end. That means the beginning. Because the prerequisite for life is death. Understanding that we are sinners is where we find our need. We don't go to the doctor unless we're sick. We don't turn to Jesus unless we realize that we're a sinner. When we understand our sin, we understand that Jesus' death on the cross is a sufficient payment so that I might be forgiven and you might be forgiven. If you feel under the weight of your sin, know that's the beginning of the path of life that is only found in Jesus. Death is a prerequisite for life. Have you trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Second thing that I think you need to think about, though, is this. 
Jesus is the catalyst for community. You know, sometimes we, we, we fall into this trap of thinking that the best community will happen with people who are just like me. People are just like, if my people are there, whether that's the, the five people that you hang out with the best or the 12 or the 20 or the 25 or the 50, that only when, when those people are there, then I can show up. Then it's something of value for me because the best community comes with those who meet some other kind of criteria. But what we see in this story is that community can happen when Jesus is at the center. Jesus can take people as diverse as Peter and Matthew who have as bad of a history as Peter and Matthew and he can unite them into fellowship together because he is at the center. And we need to remember that, right? Because when we think about our life and we think about the things that are going on, you know, we're thinking about our, our kids and should our kids go to Awana and we're thinking, well, I don't know, is my kid's best friend going to be at Awana? Are they going to be in the same table group and all these kinds of things? Hey, guess what? At Awana, Jesus is going to be there. We're going to gather around his word. So no matter who they're with, there's an opportunity for them to have real community. You might think about your, your, your student. You think, I don't know if they should go to student ministry, and I don't know if their, their people are going to be there. There's some other friends from other schools, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, guess what? Jesus is going to be there. We're going to gather around the person of Christ so people even from different schools and different backgrounds can find some community there. So we lean into that. Same thing is, is true of a college student who thinks, I, I don't know, should I go to the lunch today that's happening for college students downstairs? I don't know, are my people are going to be there? Somebody from my dorm floor? Somebody from my hometown? Guess what? Jesus is going to be there. There's an opportunity for us to find community together in Christ. Same thing for us as adults, Right? We're sometimes the worst at this. We want our, our, our kids to take these steps, but sometimes as adults, we, we get nervous about this. Well, I don't know, are my people going to be there? And we think, I, you know, they're talking about small groups and community and the Bible Institute and opportunities that we have in our bulletin to connect as adults. And we think, should I take a step into that? Guess what? Jesus is going to be at the center of those things so different people can find community there together. You know, just in, in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have these open houses begin for our small groups. They're going to be September 10th and 17th in, in various homes. My home, uh, Pastor Bruce Hess's home, Pastor Brian Hayes' home, and Greg and Jolie Williams. We're going to gather in those homes, anybody that's looking for community, and kind of see what small groups are all about. And you're wondering, should I come to one of those? Should I connect? Hey, guess what? Jesus is going to be there. Let's lean in together. I'm going to invite you to consider what does it look like have community with Jesus as the catalyst. We have that opportunity. You can find information about all those things inside your bulletin, and we'll talk about it a little more later. First thing we see is that Jesus invites the fallen to follow. The second thing we see, though, is this. Jesus invites the fallen to something new. He invites the fallen to something new. Now, we see this in verses 14 through 17. And, and this happens because as Jesus is hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners, as he's hanging out with Matthew and the rest of the fallen, people are looking at it going, wait a minute, this doesn't jive with our old understanding of religion. And Jesus basically has an interaction with some folks and he says, you're right. You're right, me hanging out with them doesn't make sense to you because you're trying to hang on to something old, a, a perverted understanding of what religion looks like, instead of moving on to the new thing that God is doing. Jesus says, I'm building something new. And this, this happens in an interaction with one set of religious people who are the disciples of John the Baptist. 
Remember, John the Baptist was the one who was the forerunner of Jesus. He had a ministry in the wilderness before Jesus began his public ministry. And, and many of John's disciples, many of those who followed John, eventually followed Jesus, but some of them didn't. And on a couple of occasions, they showed back up in Jesus' life to ask him questions about what they were seeing. One of those times is found here in 14 to 17 of chapter 9. It says, the disciples of John came to Jesus and they said to him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples not fast? See, the, the Pharisees and, and John the Baptist's disciples, they, they fasted, they with, with, withheld food from their, uh, their mouth uh, many times during a month, as often as twice a week they, they wouldn't eat. That's way beyond what the Old Testament required, but they would do that to demonstrate their, their piety and their dependence upon God, at least in a public expression of that. So they wouldn't eat like twice a week. Now, these disciples of John show up and they look at this party that is happening. I mean, I, I can imagine that it's possible that this party is happening on one of the days that they're fasting. And so they're hungry and they're watching Jesus have a party and they're watching his disciples and they're watching the tax collectors in the house with the drawbridge and they're saying, what is going on here? How come you're having a party and we're not eating? Jesus gives them an answer. Verse 15, he said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, you guys are missing the point. That's what Jesus says. He says, we're having a party because the one that you and everyone here has said that we're longing to see, the Messiah, is in the midst. He's in the house. Therefore, we're going to have a party right now in this fellowship together. Because I'm here. And Jesus says, there's going to come a time where I'm going to go and ascend back to the Father. And at that time, my followers will fast again. And that's exactly what happened. We don't see Jesus' disciples fasting during the Gospels. But when we look at the book of Acts, after the ascension of Jesus, they fast again. But Jesus wants them to know, your question, disciples of John, misses the point. We're having a party because I'm here. And because I desire fellowship. We're going to lean into that. Jesus goes on to let them know that he was building something new, not just putting a Band-Aid on something old. He gives two examples. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, because if, the, if, if it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Friends, those two illustrations may not make tons of sense to us, but here's their bottom line. You can't take something old that is aged and weathered and become brittle and put something new on it and expect it to adhere well. You put a, a new patch on an old garment and they have stretched at different areas and they will, they will eventually tear apart. You take a, a brittle old container and you put new wine in it that needs to expand as it ferments and it's eventually going to bust the container. What Jesus is saying is he says your understanding of religion in this old way, this old rigid way, I'm not here to just put a band-aid on it. I'm here to do something entirely new. The reason why it doesn't make sense that I'm eating with, with tax collectors and sinners is because you're trying to take your old religion and put a band-aid on it and I'm telling you I'm here to create a whole new body of Christ that makes it possible for fallen people like you and me to connect with God forever. Now, a couple of, of things that we need to reflect on with this. 
The first thing we need to reflect on is this. Our hope is not in Jesus plus X. Now, it's dangerous again for me to use a, a math example, but, but imagine, think back to algebra, okay? X is the variable. And in our lives, many times we want to find our hope in Jesus plus something else. Jesus plus our upbringing. Jesus plus our personal acts of righteousness. Jesus plus our church attendance. Jesus plus how much money we've given. We want to find our hope in Jesus plus something else. We want to take that old religion we have and put a little bit of Jesus on the outside and call it Christianity. But Jesus said that's not the way it works. Our hope is Jesus alone. Our hope is only found in him. And if you're here today and you're trying to find your hope in in something else besides Jesus, know that you're just taking your old wineskin and putting a Band-Aid on the side. Jesus wants to do something new entirely. He wants to fill our cup with his hope. But it's found when we trust in him and him alone. Second thing that I think we need to reflect on, though, is, is this. Do our expressions of love raise any eyebrows from religious people? Do our expressions of love raise any eyebrows from religious people? You can't read the Gospels without seeing over and over and over again Jesus' expression of love and grace raising the eyebrows of religious people. They look at him, they go, why is he hanging out with them? Why is he doing this? Why is he doing that? It didn't make sense to them because their old, rigid understanding of religion didn't include that kind of love for people. And yet followers of Christ are called to demonstrate that kind of love all the time. Friends, when was the last time that a religious person looked at you and raised an eyebrow because of the way that you were showing grace and mercy and love to someone else. As we follow Christ, no doubt that will happen. Friends, Jesus has invited fallen people like you and me to something new. He's invited us to the table. 